I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Rupert Everett as part of my In Conversation series that was transmitted on the W channel. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight I will be in conversation with a man whose career has included Hollywood films with the likes of Julia Roberts and Colin Firth, but it's also included sitting on a couch with a man in a gimp mask in Hull. My guest tonight is Rupert Everett. Thank you. Very good. So yes, thank you. Rupert, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. No, I, I've, I've been intrigued with you for... Years, because my wife read your autobiography. Really? The Red, red Carpet right. and all the banana skins. She mm-hmm. read that and she said, you've got to read this. So she passed it on to me and that would have been, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. That's right, yeah. And it was when I was reading that, I realised that the first time I'd come across you was in another country. Right. Which was 1984. And that film is so revealing of so many things. Mm. For those people who don't know it, it's... Loosely based on the, the life of Guy Burgess, isn't right. it? And it's posh public school boys in a boarding school and that whole bullying and the issues over homosexuality. And I remember at the time it being such a big, brave film to come out. Did you recognise the impact it would have? Well, first of all, I, I, uh, it was a big break for me. I was, um, I'd just come out of drama school. I was working in, in the old days when you became an actor. Everything's so different nowadays, but in the old days, you had to become a member of the union before you got to be in films and television. You had to go and work in repertory theatre, and I was working in Scotland. When you say the union, you mean equity? Equity. Yeah. Uh, and I was working in Glasgow, and I got an audition for this play, Another Country, and I got the lead role, which was, uh, you know, it was definitely, the, I was very, very lucky at that point. And uh, the play transferred into the West End. Yeah. And it was a very successful play for a lot of actors, because, first of all, I was in it, then Daniel Day-Lewis was in it, then Colin Firth was in it. Uh, it started off, it was one of those plays... Because it showed off young actors very well, um, it was great for a lot of us. And the film, uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing break for me. And for a while, things couldn't have been better. It's a, it is an amazing story in another country. It's a story about, I don't know how many of you will remember all this, but in the 60s and 70s, England suddenly discovered that we had about five or six spies uh, for Russia. Mm. And they all had come from these incredibly... Not incredibly grand backgrounds, but, you know, affluent backgrounds. And nobody could get their heads around why anyone would want to betray the country uh, in such a way. And another country is a really uh, clever story as to why perhaps this one character, Guy Burgess, did it. When you watch that film, you can almost see why, because the brutality of that kind of boarding school bullying that was empire born. ruling uh, england yeah this is the thing that i find about that world of institutionalized education where there's a history and you're going where your father went and that is the loss of your own identity and what strikes me is you seem right from an early age to have gone 
I'm not you, I'm different. And that takes a little bit of courage. But I think that's the same with any type of background because you're forced into your father's football team to mm. enjoy it. You're forced into your parents' religion. It all starts there. You, I think as a child, one is constantly being bashed with somebody else's values, yeah. not just as a British public school, anywhere. So when you decided that you wanted to leave and go into acting, how was that received by your family? My dad was quite mercenary, and so he was always complaining about paying the school fees. So when I uh, <laughs> told him I wanted to go out on my own, he was absolutely thrilled. I could see him counting under the table how much <laughs> money he was going to save. My mum, on the other hand, she said, oh, everything's going to go wrong, it'll be a disaster, and uh, she thought I was going to end up in a very bad way. So, so you arrived into London, at what, what year would that have been? I managed to make my parents send me to this college where you chose two really duff A-levels, like History of Art and English Literature, which you didn't really have to bother about. And I had if to there go... is any kids who are studying history, oh, yeah. <laughs> Keep it's going. really important. Keep going, guys, it's really easy. <laughs> no, um, it's... <laughs> it's not really easy, actually. They're all, they're all quite complex. <laughs> but you only had... Suddenly, I was in a world where there was only two classes a week because it was all of the rest of it was a kind of uh, sixth-form college. And so I, I just spent the whole time out on the streets you know, uh, sniffing out London, really. And in those days, it was such a different city. You know, it was a much more, uh, it was a much gentler city in a gentler. way. Gentler? I yeah. thought you were going to say grubbier and more gritty. It was grubby, it was bankrupt, it was falling to pieces, but it was gentler because there wasn't this kind of division of people. In the, in, when I first came to London, when you probably, I only discovered this person was 50-ish the other day. Yeah. He, he was very well preserved, but... Um, <laughs> Everyone you lived have in... no idea. <laughs> that bit is staying in the show. Whatever else, whatever else that goes out, that bit's in. <laughs> but everyone lived in the centre of London. You know, um, someone who drove a taxi lived in Bayswater. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't, it, it wasn't just the, the uber-rich living uh, in the centre of London. It was a, it was a much uh, sweeter place in a way, I think. But when you came here, you threw yourself into the drugs, sort of going out and to the gay scene. Mm. So at 16, you were already openly gay. Did your family know? No, very Did covertly. You know? I was covertly gay. Um, I just didn't really know what it all was about. I was just like, London was this kind of big pie that you could investigate. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, what was amazing about a scene like that then, because it was so much smaller, everybody who was gay went to the same place. So you could, you could end up having a conversation between, you know, uh, a marquis and a plumber. Yeah. Um, the Marquis could be 70 and the plumber could be 30 and uh, because there was only one place basically or one or two places to go. So there was a kind of amazing equality about it and also there was an amazing sense of being outside of society because we were only just recently uh, legal because it was only in 1967 yeah. uh, where, with Wolfenden where um, homosexuality was actually legalised. To, to many people here, and that, that, that's... It's impossible it, to imagine. It's, it's mental to try and get your head around. And it? even that was a, a, a twisted thing, because it was legal, provided there were no public displays of affection. So you could be in a club. I was in tons of places that were raided by the police. Well, and I read that in your book, the, the police raids. Yeah. And when I read that, I thought, raids? Yeah, and that, in a sense, was I really kind of... I think that changed my life. I've never been able to get on with the police ever since that. Yeah. Because when you're on the other side of the police, you know, you just see what rats they are. They just treat you badly because they can. Yeah. And they kind of haul everyone in. They, they, they treat you like scum. And, uh, and but do you I, think the police attitude 
then reflect the society because that sure they do that the same now that. because actually I I was making um, s- some documentaries about prostitution uh, yeah. uh, last year and I'd met all these girls who worked in Soho and I went to see one of them the night of this huge police raid and I swear to you it was the most shocking thing I've ever seen and I thought God nothing has changed from. Uh, from the old days, these people treating people with no respect, pushing them out of rooms with, their, with no clothes on, shoving them into paddy wagons and stuff like that. It's, you know, just unreal behaviour. Well, now you've mentioned it, your career has gone in a different direction with the documentaries you made. You made one about Lord Byron, which I saw, which I really enjoyed. And then you made the documentary about prostitution called mm. Love for Sale. That documentary was... I'd say the most immersive documentary I've, I've ever seen for a number of reasons that I'll come on to. But why did you want to do it? Well, because this whole debate is going on about the criminalisation uh, of the client in prostitution. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me about our world now is how I feel, I feel that we're, we're becoming kind of constipated by this uh, language and mentality of political correctness. And I'm not, I'm not saying under any circumstances that prostitution is the ideal trade, but uh, people choose to do it, maybe because uh, they're, they're desperate for money. They choose to do it. What they need is to be decriminalised themselves so that they're safe, because at the moment the laws against them are so stacked up, you can't work with another girl. You have to work alone. So that put, makes you much more vulnerable. But you said then, and it's a bold statement to say people do it through choice. You know, and now it's a choice based on limited opportunities, one would say. Sure, but uh, yes, of course it is. But if someone is making that choice for whatever reason, surely they deserve to be looked after and to be uh, made safe. Because prostitution is not going to end. There's no way, I don't think, of it ever ending. No, no. Uh, I, I, I don't think... see how that's possible unless... We're all nuked uh, uh, or something. Yeah. I, just, I just don't see how it can end. What I find interesting about your career, you've done those two big films, Another Country, Dance with a Stranger, then you went to Paris, and then you disappeared for a couple of years and went to Russia. Yeah, I went to Paris because uh, it was quite a good plan, actually, but it didn't work out. Um, I, I, because when, when you do films in England, it still happens now, the first thing you do is you go to America and you try and cash in on the success and, and get the, the American side of your career going. And so in, in this time when I was doing Another Country, the movie, and this other movie, Dance with a Stranger, I'd be back and forth yeah. to L.A. trying to get uh, jobs there, and I never managed to get a fucking job. And then what was meant to happen in 1988 is that Europe was meant to be unified and uh, in 1989, the European cinema was going to be launched. And I thought, God, why don't I, instead of trying to fit in and become Tom Cruise, I should just try and be myself and be kind of right in at the beginning of the European cinema movement. So then I just went to Paris, learned French and tried to do that. But of course, what I discovered after that was it was easier said than done. It didn't really work. It didn't work, but it took you... 12 years to find out. No, I did lots of European films. Yeah, that's I, what I mean. You, when you were there, it wasn't like you did nothing. No, no, I'd become quite successful. I'd done uh, a great film with an amazing director called Francesco Rosi called The Chronicle of a Death Foretold. And I'd done another one called um, with Philippe Noiret, French actor. And uh, then I, I bought a house, a huge house, 
in the countryside in France, and I knocked the whole thing down without a permit. And then <laughs> uh, this, I was, I hadn't got a clue. And then I went broke. And on the day that I was um, driving in my little car up to the village, the electricity had been cut off and the water had been cut off. I had a dog at this point, and I got this offer for a job in Russia for a year and a half. And uh, so I took it. It was forgive me. It see was the way the way you said that, it just kind of reflects your personality, but also in my mind reflects about what you were saying before about the class system in Britain. Because someone with your accent says, you know, I bought a huge house in France and I knocked it down without a payment. <laughs> Everyone goes, that's eccentric. Someone with my accent goes, I bought a house in France and knocked it down without a payment. Everyone thinks. Criminal. All right. <laughs> you, you, you've got that, but you've got that confidence to to plough your own path. I think you do when you're young. You have you yeah. have more confidence when you're younger than when you get older. Do you think so? Yeah, definitely. And you end up aged 80, terrified across the road because you'll fall over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's what happens. That's the journey. But well, thanks for that. <laughs> well, it's true in a way. I yeah. mean, roughly speaking. But at what stage? Because bear in mind, Russia at this point and still communist. Put it in, in context, it's still behind the wall. Mm, it's it's behind the wall, and it was desperate measures. I didn't have any other jobs. I would never have gone if I'd had some money. And this job was actually quite a very weird job. It was a film of a very famous Russian book called Quiet Flows the Don. And this book is uh, in Russia is like, I don't know what it, there's no equivalent here, it's, but the character I was playing is a folk hero as bigger than Robin Hood because he's a, a revolutionary character from 1918, he's a Cossack, and I was completely wrong for the role. I had to like throw javelins, do everything, jump on a horse, and um, everyone else had been offered the part, but none of them wanted to do it. And just because of my electricity and water had been cut off, <laughs> I just thought, well, this is a move. You know, the show business is all about making a move, because you you're a shark. If you stay still, you're, you're dead. Yeah. So uh, then suddenly, the next cut to, I'm on the plane with my dog uh, going to Moscow, and I stay there for 18 months, and um, I'm making this film with this very, very famous old Russian film director who is best friends with Stalin, and he runs the, the, the Moscow uh, film studio. And I bring with me this little tiny pixie-like queen that I met on the beach in, uh, in, in France to be my cook. And unbeknownst to me, this queen collects Barbie dolls. And uh, he's doing the cooking for me. And I say to him one day, listen, um, I'm bringing the director back for dinner. So make us a nice dinner. He says, no problem, no problem, Rupert. And uh, so the director, he's really, he's about 75 years old and terrifying. You know, he's had people sent to the gulag. And we get to my flat, which is in uh, some block, Soviet block. And I ring the doorbell and this little pixie answers. And to my horror, on the little table by the door, I see a kind of Barbie doll sitting like this. <laughs> And I think, God, I hope the director doesn't see that. So I go like this, and then I, and then I go to the loo, and on the loo roll is another Barbie doll like this. <laughs> and then I go into the sitting room, and the whole sofa has Barbie dolls all over it. <laughs> and I'm playing a Cossack, right, in this, in this series. So I go into the kitchen and say, Bruno, what the fuck is going on? What are these Barbie dolls doing there? And he says, oh, relax, tell them they're mine. <laughs> and, uh, and it went on from there. It was just the most extraordinary uh, year I've ever had. My next-door neighbour burnt to death on the second night uh, in these buildings you got I these big just yeah. 
I don't know anyone who's gone from Barbie dolls and gone... <laughs> and on the second night, my neighbour burned to death. Well, you know, they drink a lot in Russia. Yeah. And it was just... It was it was the weirdest uh, place to... to, to... But, but that was at a time of... Glasnost came in, oh. isn't it? The change and... No, yes. There was... Um, the end of communism happened on our third week. For, the fourth on week your third there. week? Yeah. <laughs> on your third week? <laughs> yeah. And do you think you had anything to do with it? <laughs> no, I didn't have anything to do, but I was very much involved because this director, he'd made, a, he'd made a very, very famous, the famous version of War and Peace, uh, the Russian version. It's a five-hour version. You can sometimes see it at the National Film Theatre and sometimes they show it with an orchestra. It's absolutely amazing. And because he was great friends with Stalin, he used the whole Russian army for War and Peace and he used it for our film too. So the whole of the First World War was with the real army. And uh, one day we arrived at work and our tank regiment that was uh, fighting with us, we were doing battle charges on horses, uh, they were all leaving. And uh, we, we, we all got there. It was a t an Italian crew and me and Russian crew. I was the only per English person there. And they said something's going on. And we were all sent back home. And then the coup had happened. And I had as my car uh, this um, limousine that used to be Brezhnev's summer limousine. It was this gigantic thing driven by this man with gigantic dark glasses for some reason. And we could get through anywhere because then Russia went, Moscow went under curfew. But we could get through. So we went right up to the White House. And then all my friends who'd been in the tank regiments, uh, who'd been fighting with us in the First World War, were in the tanks. So I've got. I was trying to so find for you. I was trying to find for you pictures of me in the tanks uh, with my dog waving uh, <laughs> <laughs> during the coup. coup. Yeah, <laughs> cuckoo. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really, and Drama wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV. Wolf. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Free. The Russian period of your life comes before, I guess, the big, big, big film. It's my best friend. Oh, yeah. I've read that you've said it was like people told us if they discovered you. And it was an amazing uh, thing because it, on paper it looked like the worst job um, I'd ever had because up until then I'd been in films, much smaller types of films, you know, European films, uh, kind of uh, arty films, and I'd played, you know, substantial big roles. Um, and this role in that film that I went up for, I didn't even, and I had to audition for it, it was a tiny role, it was only about a scene long or two scenes. 
And it was this kind of gay best friend of the Julia Roberts character. And in the initial script, it really was, it wasn't even written up as anything. And it was one of those things that just, it was such, it was such good luck for me because I arrived there. I got on really well with the director and I got on very well uh, with uh, Julia Roberts. And then they started writing more scenes for my part. And then, uh, then I got this big scene singing. And, uh, you know, then yeah. suddenly uh, it, uh, when, when they started showing the film, because in Hollywood what happens with films is they, they start showing them to, to audiences and, that, and the audience have to write down what they think and then, and then they go and change the film depending on what the audience said. And the audience said, where is the gay guy at the end? And uh, so I was flown back and put into the end of the film and then the film suddenly became my film. Uh, and for a moment, for a few years, I was very, very successful. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was incredibly lucky. That kind of... Up and down. Did you think if you'd have gone from another country, Dance with a Stranger, straight to Hollywood, you would have not appreciated it the same way? Being gay in show business, you're, you have to kind of go with the... You have, in that, you have to go with the swing with th- the punches. Do you think that's still the same now? I don't know. I think uh, there's the various different constitutions in Hollywood are changing. Television, for example, uh, you, can, you could always be gay in... But the, the movies, to be an, a, a proper movie star, I think it's still uh, quite difficult. What was obviously great for me was suddenly being gay and playing a gay part and being loved by a movie star. Suddenly it looked like everything was great for me. But the thing is, every interview I did, it's all just about being gay. And after a bit, you have to be able to be a human being and not just that. Because if you are just that, then your world gets, in in one sense, uh, more constrained. And what I needed was to try and break out from being, uh, you know, uh, the gay best friend to someone not necessary to play the romantic lead, but to play something that was just away from that particular thing. And it was just impossible to get away from. So that period then when you come out and there's, there, there, as you say, for two or three years, all the doors are open to you. Yeah, and then it snapped shut. What, what was the snap? The snapshot was failure. Everything I did was a success to start with. And then my first failure, which was uh, the film I did with Madonna, which is called The Next Best Thing, it, it snapshot from, from that minute onwards. That had an effect on her acting career as well. It knocked it on the head, thank yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, and, and I'm going to say so, not, not in reference to, to Madonna as such, but when you are an actor... <laughs> And you are in a situation where you're acting against somebody who's not very good. It's the party that feels like, oh, I can't be asked. Do you bring down or can you bring someone up? Well, in that film, I wasn't very good either, to be honest. So the whole thing was was just a disaster. Why? 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 why how, that's another thing that I don't I don't get sometimes. Well, I tell you, the the reason for that is that romantic comedy, which is one of the things that you know English people can get on in in America. It's very difficult trying to marry American humour with an English voice. So Americans, you watch Friends and all those things. They have it's a it's a really slick very funny type of comedy. But then you see it in quite a lot of English actors. You know, Hugh Grant does uh, lots of films where there's mostly Americans and there's just him. The humour and the rhythm is so different between an English uh, rhythm and an American one. Quite often, you get this kind of crash of things just not working. Added to which, we had, uh, you know, we had this fantastic old director who was just too old. Poor thing, and he <laughs> just fell asleep. <laughs> he fell asleep at the oh. wheel. He would, we would be doing scenes, and you know, you wait at the end of a scene for the director to say cut, and you'd be kind of, and you know, that was the last line, and someone said, okay, cut, and he, there would be nothing. And then there would be a, 
from behind the thing. Yeah, and he, was, he would be asleep, so we'd just start the scene again. And, um, and that, you know, didn't help. This. Everything about this. it went, uh, went kind of wrong. But after that, the, the disaster of that, what, what they thought, at the time when that movie came out, there was this big billboard on Sunset Boulevard saying 20 million gays and lesbians in the US. And so, you know, the studios aren't exactly phobic. They want money. So for them, uh, this film was a Paramount film. Uh, they thought, well, great, if those 20 million people are going to come to the movie, you know, two thumbs up, because that would be huge. And to give them their credit, when, when I saw the movie and I realized it wasn't very good, I said, well, listen, what we should do, we should have a weekend in Miami and ask every single little gay magazine, the ones you get in bars and clubs, to come to Miami, and I will tell them, listen, if you get the gay people to back this film uh, and all come to it, there will be so many gay films films in Hollywood in the next five years that you won't be able to move. And it was a really, an another of my really good plans that went completely <laughs> wrong. Um, so then, uh, uh, then I arrive in Miami, the whole thing is there, every single gay magazine is there, Madonna's there, I've organised the whole thing. I really at this point feel that I'm ruling the world because I've got um, a Hollywood studio to agree to this amazing master promotional plan and they hated it, the gay magazines. And not only that... They then, there was this thing, because it was made by Paramount, there was this chat show on Paramount at the same time with this woman who had said something very bad about lesbians or something. And so there was this whole pressure group built up against our film because of this uh, TV show. So there were people um, yeah. forming groups outside the cinema trying to get people to stop coming to my little film. But presumably... By the time it's launched, like with most films, it's a year after you did it. When you're in the middle of something, do you know it's no good? Some people do and some people don't. I yeah. always do. But then there's nowhere to go. No, there's nowhere to go. But then at the same, that's the, the, you know, show business is like that. You can't get too wound up about these things yeah. because it's so up and down. The best way of approaching it is as a roller coaster ride. And you have to have a sense of humour about it when you can. And it was a funny film to make. And, and, uh, and you know, it was a kind of, it was a weird kind of pinnacle for me. And, um, and I shouldn't have done it, and I knew I shouldn't have done it. Uh, but once I was in, I was in, and that was, it was too late. And then what, you come back and go into theatre? Back theater. into theatre. <laughs> but is that... Thank God. I, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, for an actor, I've always thought that the theatre must... You must feel when you're treading the boards that you are actually doing the job. Being in the theatre is great. The trouble with the theatre is, uh, to make it work, you have to be in a play for for quite a long time and so uh, if you were in a play for two or three weeks for example it really is every night is incredibly exciting uh, after that something happens which is you look at yourself in the mirror getting ready and you look at the light bulbs around it you think god I'd actually like to eat one of these light bulbs <laughs> rather than go on stage because it's like staging an orgasm it takes a lot of weird energy uh, to to come up with a, a performance when when it's become something you know completely so you come back you do theater and you do well well luckily also i had the idea for the centrinians films they were my idea so th those were going uh, ahead and uh, so that that kept me busy as well and also alongside that you become an animated prince and then, and then the, the, the last, the, the, the kind of the silent but deadly fart of my Hollywood career <laughs> is, uh, is I get the role that I would never be able to get in a live-action film, which is the uh, Prince Charming in, uh, in Shrek. And so that was a, an amazing uh, job to get, too. Uh, that was very lucky. That kept me going till 2007, too. So, so I'm, I'm just getting over the fact that the silent but deadly <laughs> fart of my Hollywood career... <laughs> Coming back to the one thing that I've always sensed about you 
is that ability to stand apart from everyone else. Is that reflective in any way whatsoever of your real life when it comes to reviews? Do you read them? Are you bothered by them? I don't read them, but I'd, I'd like to, then, someone else to read them to me yeah. if they're good. Yeah. <laughs> but I've been in that situation where people say, do you read And I go, no. And I do. Bad reviews are just hideous, though. Really horrible. When you're in a situation where you've made something, because this is the thing that strikes me about the theatre most, is that the theatre is immediate, you'll get the review whilst you're still in the run. If you make a film, you've moved on. The film comes out a year later, you're still invested in it in terms of your personal performance. But no, the theatre's not like that either, in a way, because the reviews come out and they, they, they direct the people uh, yeah. how to react, really. If, the, if you have a rave review, people will come in thinking rave. Well, that's what I mean. If, you, if you've had a good review, you can ride the wave of yeah. it. But if you've got a bad review, you've still got to go to work. If oh, you you've know, made the it's film... It's the worst. If, you're, if you've got bad reviews in the theatre and you have to plough on through a play that, you know, everyone's kind of going, all the way through, which they quite often do. People groan sometimes. And then they, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then they answer back, you know, like they were going to say, that's a shit question, that's a shit answer. Yeah. They say, oh, speak up, oh, come on. They yeah. say things like that. Really horrible things sometimes. So... This new phase that you've got in your life now, this documentary-making phase, was that just because there was Lord Byron and then there was Love for Sale that, that I've seen? Uh, yeah, I'm, I've always wanted to do uh, documentaries and uh, I'm, I'm always trying... To, I'm quite, I think the best thing about me in my career is I'm quite entrepreneurial. I'm always having yeah. ideas. And, uh, and really, to keep going, you have to. It's like being a sperm bashing yourself against the egg. Uh, and you have to just keep kind of shooting <laughs> like this. And, uh, There's if, so many quotes <laughs> coming out of here. And if one idea doesn't work, you have to go back and then yeah. uh, go forward again uh, because uh, most ideas don't work they just say no uh, so you have to keep going keep going most ideas are bad sperm the good yeah, sperm yeah. will win but the occasion you come up with a good sperm you go whack and crack and you're in but it is yeah, <laughs> but it is that creative process however you've got to be I, I, I feel anyway with documentaries you've got to have a passion for it and be committed yeah. and I said before that the uh, Love for Sale documentary where you were looking at, at Sex for Sale was the most immersive documentary I've seen. I, th I think you won an award for I it did. as well. I did, I won the Grayson Award, which, which is, is, you know, is a really good award to it's win. It's the yeah. top award to win, yeah, really, for thrilled. documentary makers. But it, let's be fair, it was massively immersive because there was a chap that you were talking to that was with, wearing the gimp mask and who's obviously got uh, a sexual predilection for seeing uh, dominatrix. But he yeah. hadn't. The thing that was amazing about that guy, he was a totally normal guy. He was married... Uh, he'd only discovered uh, this dominatrix by looking in the paper one day and thought, oh, I'll give it a try. That was the most amazing thing about that documentary. It, it, the, the, it goes on, this world, in the most ordinary places. There is a dominatrix in every village in the world. And one That's scene, what you said. Yeah, one scene that I didn't manage to do, I, we met, went to meet this really weird old guy like a professor and he wrote the guide to dominatrixes in england and what he did he just went around in his little car to dominatrixes all around the country and got a good seeing to from each of them and then wrote a <laughs> wrote a review the aa guide to <laughs> yeah. dominatrixes. and so i said god my mum lives in a village in wiltshire 
uh, <laughs> near a town called uh, Pusey. I said, there, there isn't one in Pusey, is there? And he said, oh, oh yes, there's Mistress Evil. And so I thought, oh, God, fantastic. So we organised for her to come to our village hall, and my mum and me were going to do a scene shopping. And I said, come on, mum, let's just, I've, got to, I've got to do a bit of work, and I was going to take her to meet the dominatrix. <laughs> she would have been absolutely disgusted. What are you doing? Anyway, the, the dominatrix got wind of us and then backed out. But there's, one in, there's a dominatrix in every village. What struck me about it is you were immersed in it to the extent that you were extremely comfortable. Mm. You, 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 you weren't a journalist saying, hi, how's it going? And then, and then she goes into a locked room. There's one point, there's one scene, without, without being too graphic, where the guy's on all fours. And I put the truncheon up him. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that was the <laughs> bit I wasn't going to say. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so she's got a police truck. That's when I said, the thing I yeah, said yeah, when I did that was, yeah. there goes my Kenko ad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're hitting him with the rider's crop, and I'm thinking, this is, <laughs> I mean, this is a full-on documentary, but what I found about that is, like, you're complete comfort in that environment. It's like you had no judgments on anyone that you were meeting at no. all. Which why probably you were the right person for it. We ask all of our guests when they, when they come onto the show to bring in a photograph. Oh, Just yeah. one photograph that means something to you. This is the picture you've brought. Well, this is the photograph of me in my first ever job in the cinema. How old are you? Um, about 20 and I'm playing Lancelot in a really bad NBC miniseries called Arthur the King. And um, <laughs> it was a new look at the Arthurian legend, seen from the point of view of an actress who probably most of you won't remember, called Diane Cannon, who is a very quirky uh, L.A. actress, and she's walking around Stonehenge, and she falls down a hole into Merlin's cave, and uh, <laughs> then she kind of falls into the Arthurian legend, and I was Lancelot in it, and it was my first job, and Malcolm McDowell was King Arthur, and Liam Neeson was the villain, and it was an amazing uh, experience. It was my first ever kind of proper job. Was that the point where you think this is... This is my future, this is my life. Oh, no, it's before real. that, I was like, I'd been plotting and planning that. You were doing it anyway. Yeah, I was doing it anyway. Even when I was at school, I'd made myself a dressing room with telephones and I'd talk to pretend <laughs> Italian agents and Hollywood agents and stuff like that. I was always into all that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, honestly, Rupert, I think we'll all agree this has been a great conversation, but I think everybody who's going to watch this is going to say, for one day in everyone's life, they should have a chance to be Rupert Everett. Oh, God. <laughs> because, no, because you created a, a multi-layered, fascinating world, and, I, and I, I'm glad that you've spent some time with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was great. Thanks a lot. This podcast was brought to you by UK TV Play. The free on-demand service. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.